Hello, and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas. First, let me explain what we're doing here. There are a lot of great podcasts, and there's some really great political podcasts, but we're doing something different. We're taking a different road. We're taking a fresh look at our political system. Introducing The X-Ray, a new political podcast about political power. Who wants it, who wills it, and why? A penetrating analysis of the biggest issues facing American politics. Interviews with power players, conversations with politicos, experts, and national journalists. And a special segment called X-Ray Vision, a fun exploration of the real person behind the political title. I'm your host, Fernando Espuelas, and I hope you'll join me every week on The X-Ray. For more information, check out thexray.org, and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray is a project of Issue One. I'm Weston Womp, and this is Swamp Stories, presented by Issue One. January 6th has always been a ceremonial process where electoral counts are counted by the vice president in the presence of the Congress, as written in Article 2 of the Constitution, and then they are counted, and the next president is declared. Every four years on January 6th, Congress convenes, with the vice president presiding to carry out an important but ministerial aspect of the peaceful transfer of power. Per the U.S. Constitution, Congress counts states' electoral votes. This tradition nearly unraveled a decade after the Civil War when one contentious election posed questions that were not clearly answered in the Constitution. In 1887, Congress passed legislation to clarify its role in counting the electoral votes. But as clear as the legislative intent of the law was, the actual legislative language is, well, let's say a little messy and now out of date. Earlier this year, on January 6th, the ambiguities in that law nearly plunged the country into an electoral crisis. And this left Republicans like Dan Crenshaw angry, as he forcefully expressed on his own podcast three days after the Capitol attacks. People were misled. People were lied to about what January 6th really was. They were told that this would be your last stand. This would be the place where you could finally make a difference. This is the final certification of, of the election, they were told. And if you just object to it and provide the evidence, you can make our case, Donald Trump would be president. You were told this by the people you trust in media. You were told this by commentators. You were told this by elected officials. The president himself told you this. And they lied to you. They lied to you. This is episode 31, Regularly Given. So in 1876, there was this presidential election where there was a real dispute about how to count the electoral votes. And, you know, it may seem that just counting is a simple act, that there couldn't be any possible controversy about it. But it turns out there was. And the reason there was is that there were a couple of states in the South that in the aftermath of the Civil War had a couple of different groups of people that thought they might be the government of those states. And so they sent in different 
slates of electors, you know, pieces of paper saying they were the electors for those states. And those electors supported different presidential candidates. When we go to the polls in November, we technically vote for a slate of electors who are committed to voting for a particular candidate when they go to the Electoral College in December. Once they vote as part of the Electoral College in December, those votes are sent to Congress, which then counts them in January and announces the winner. Matthew Seligman, special counsel with the Campaign Legal Center, and Jean-Viev Nadeau, counsel at Protect Democracy, are two of the foremost experts of the Electoral Count Act, the 130-year-old antiquated legislation that prescribes much of the role of Congress in a presidential election. Seligman and Nadeau walked me through the events of the fiercely contested Hayes-Tilden election of 1876 that led to its enactment. So during that election, Tilden won the popular vote, he was the Democrat, but there were electoral votes from three southern states, Florida, Louisiana, South Carolina, that were seriously contested. In fact, they sent more than one slate of electors to Congress. And at the time, there was no Electoral Count Act, just the 12th Amendment that says Congress is supposed to count the votes. And so no real guidance for Congress on how to resolve that dispute. Ultimately, at the time, it was resolved through a sort of grand compromise called the Compromise of 1877, where Hayes was selected as the president, but in exchange for federal troops withdrawing from the South, right, effectively ending Reconstruction. So country came very close to the brink at that point, but made it through. In the aftermath of that conflict, Congress for a number of years wanted to figure out some way to resolve these sorts of conflicts without letting the risk go all the way up to Inauguration Day, where the risk is that two presidential candidates could have two different inaugurations and the federal government, the military, wouldn't know whose orders to follow. So as a result of those concerns, those um, really intense anxieties about the possibility of another crisis like that, happened in 1876. So Congress ended up passing the Electoral Count Act of 1887. At the time, there were concerns about its inconsistencies and convoluted language. For example, it includes a 240-word sentence. But the Electoral Count Act was passed in hopes that it would provide enough of a roadmap that Congress would be able to navigate another scenario, like 1876, if competing sets of electors were sent from one state. And it brought more structure in general, setting out a timeline for states to follow to provide a more orderly process between an election and inauguration of a president. Before the ECA, only Article II of the U.S. Constitution guided the submission of electors by states and the counting of electors by Congress. And therein lies a broad misunderstanding about the role of Congress in a presidential election. In the days leading up to January 6, 2021, Members of Congress and nearly all major media outlets made references to Congress, quote, certifying the election. But as Nadeau points out, the Constitution doesn't use the word certify when describing Congress's role. I think it's not fair to use the word certify at all in this context. So what Congress does is count. They count the votes. That's it. The word certify is a common term in elections. So, you know, you can only think that that got a bit... Um, conflated, but we also saw various, you know, various actors at the federal level and in and out of government talking about the role of Congress and the role of vice president in ways that are just not accurate. The reason this clarification matters is that without more scrutiny on Congress's constitutional role, it's not much of a mental leap to Congress then having the power 
to not certify, or as it was called in January, to reject electors. In the context that Congress has a determinative role in an election, one particularly arcane phrase in the Electoral Count Act became justification for Congress overturning the legitimate election results. Regularly given is a term used in the statute to describe electoral votes. If you go back in the history, there's clearly a meaning to that, and it's pretty narrow, actually, but it just doesn't map on with our current language. That ambiguity in the existing law is fertile ground for misinterpretations even by the very best lawyers like Senator Solomon and Cruz. So these exceptionally skilled lawyers were misinterpreting the Electoral Count Act to object to the underlying election where this phrase regularly given is supposed to refer to whether the electoral votes were regularly given. And what that's supposed to mean is whether the electoral was bribed. So say we had a situation like 2000 where the electoral vote was extremely close and then somebody came up with a bag of money to the electors in Florida and said, I will give you a million dollars each to switch your electoral vote one way or the other. And that's the sort of situation that this phrase in the Electoral Count Act is supposed to refer to. But it was misused by politicians to try to attack the underlying popular election, which again, was, as the federal government has said, was the safest and most secure election in American history. We're going to take a short break. We're taking a short break from today's episode to tell you about a show in the Democracy Group, a podcast network that Swamp Stories is a part of that's made up of other shows committed to fixing our broken political system. The Democracy Matters podcast educates and inspires people to address public issues and cultivate a just and inclusive democracy. Each episode, you'll hear hosts Abe Goldberg and Kara ong have in-depth conversations with academics, practitioners, students, policymakers, and advocates who are working to strengthen our democracy and create opportunities for more informed participation in civic life. You can listen to Democracy Matters wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. For good reason, the ECA is a point of consternation for conservatives like Crenshaw and others who are fearful of a dangerous precedent. His fellow Texas Republican Chip Roy, who was a constitutional lawyer before entering Congress, was pretty clear on Crenshaw's podcast about the role of Congress. We're not supposed to be inserting ourselves into the decision-making of how those uh, electors were chosen. And on the question of whether this year's electors were regularly given, Roy offered an important reminder about the 2020 electors, particularly considering the Electoral Count Act came about in the 1880s over concerns of multiple competing sets of electors. This year, all 50 states returned a single formal slate of electors, right? Not more. Uh, There were some parties who said that they had some alternative electors and stuff, but none of those were under color of law. None of those were official. None of those were formal. Crenshaw has suggested that the Electoral Count Act needs to be interpreted by the Supreme Court. But Seligman points to a better path to ensuring the ECA is not weaponized again. I've been a Supreme Court litigator for a long time. And one of the things that I've and everyone who's litigated in the Supreme Court understands is that really unclear legislative language puts the court in a really hard place. The better thing to do is to have the American people, through their representatives, 
clarify what we're supposed to do here. You know, the Supreme Court is an important institution and it has great credibility, but we shouldn't put the court in the position of trying to interpret an uninterpretable law from the 19th century. The better thing to do is to pass a law now that pitches the ball straight down the middle. This is not a partisan thing. This is as Representative Crenshaw said, this is something that needs to be fixed just so our American democracy, so the will of the people can be reflected in the results of our presidential election. So this is not left, this is not right, and this is not something that ultimately should be put on the Supreme Court. This is something that Congress, as the representatives of the people, can and should fix. On the next episode of Swamp Stories, we're going to hear from one of the most prominent voices in one of the most politically contested parts of the country. Miami's own Carlos Curbelo is a 41-year-old former member of Congress who has carved a niche as one of the most independent voices in American politics. Curbelo and I will discuss January 6th and whether he sees a bipartisan path to updating the Electoral Count Act. Thanks for listening to Swamp Stories, presented by Issue One, the country's leading political reform organization that unites Republicans, Democrats, and independents to fix our broken political system. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Even better, rate and review it on iTunes to help us reach more listeners. You can find out more at swampstories.org. I'm your host, Weston Wong. A special thank you to executive producer Ethan Rome, senior producer Evan Ottenfield, producer Sidney Richards, and editor Parker Tant from parkerpodcasting.com. Swamp Stories was recorded in Tennessee, edited in Texas, and can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.